Amen. You can grab a seat. God, we just come before you now. We consider how precious to us is the blood of Christ. We imagine you, God, as a father with open arms welcoming us, God. And we just want to sit and settle into that love this morning. And God, I just pray uh, that as we dive into your word here, that you would allow us to comprehend the depth of your love for us, and experience it through your word. God, open our hearts, open our minds, we pray in Jesus' name, and all God's people said. Well, my kids have been asking me, like, we need to go to the zoo, like, let's go to the zoo, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, we live at the zoo, like, we, we don't need to go to the zoo, but the zoo's a cool thing, and we, we decided the weather was perfect this week, um, and we invited Poppy up, who is uh, Jess's dad, and we're like, we're going to go to the zoo, we're going to enjoy the weather, and so... Um, it was a great time. The zoo is an experience, isn't it? I mean, you got all the sights and smells, and really, it's just all the senses are involved, you know? And uh, so we were enjoying the zoo, taking it all in, uh, good and bad, and uh, just, I, I always like to make things a little extra interesting, a little fun, and so I, I decided that I would come up with just some questions as we kind of went around the zoo to kind of fill in the blanks, to kind of create some Zoo superlatives. So you guys kind of remember like senior superlatives, like best dress, this kind of stuff. So like, let's think about some, like given the animals, all that we're about to see today, I want you to pick one uh, for each of these. And so you guys can help us this morning. It's, it's going to be participatory. Um, raise the hand of whichever side of the screen the answer is for you. And now some of them I know it's going to be a toss up, but I need you to vote. Okay, this is, uh, this is just what I need from you. So um, so, for example, we, one of the categories was most likely to take home as a pet. So, if it's on this side, this side of the screen, raise that hand. This side of the screen, that hand. And uh, so, I know it's kind of a toss-up, right? Like, I, it was the meerkat for me. Like, I was like, they're awesome. They're two pounds. You barely know they're there. And they're just, like, really cool. They're just, like, running around. And every now and again, one would just kind of stand up and just be like, yeah. I'm like, that's, that's like my spirit animal. He's just hanging out, enjoying life. Jude was all about the sloth, though, and what, that was actually, that's not my photograph. We didn't get to see the sloth that day. I don't know if it was sleeping. These things are notorious for being kind of lazy and, and, you know, a little bit. Uh, so I, I like the sloth also, but I voted meerkat. Now, the, the advantage of the sloth, the good news with the sloth as a pet is nobody is saying my sloth ran away, Right? Nope, like, it's like I left the gate open, like, okay, that was two hours ago, like, he's still there. He's, he's making his way, but he's you know, bad. There's more bad jokes to come, so just be prepared for yourself. What about this one for worst haircut, all right? There's a lot of bad haircuts, by the way, but this is Warty over here on this side, and uh, I don't know this guy's name, but Warty was just a cool name, so I remembered that one, and then this, he's got the whole beard thing going on. Okay, you can put, good. So we had a lot of votes for my man over here. I don't know, some kind of chimpanzee. Um, this dude, I'm like, I think he goes to the same barber as Donald Trump. I'm just saying, like, he's got the same sort of haircut going on. Um, and this guy, like, there's just no competing with that beard. So there you go. Um, what about, and one of the things we say to our kids is, like, you don't want to be the smelly kid in class. Like, when they're like, we don't want to take a bath. Like, you don't want to be, you don't want to be the smelly kid. And so this is for the smelliest kid in class. Flamingo's over here, okay, and uh, the elephant's over here. Now, I thought the elephant's too, but then I went, because the elephant house is its whole different world, right? It's like, wow, like this takes me back to my days of traveling with like middle school and high school boys, you know? Like it's, 
You know, it's just its own world. But then you go by the full, like, I'm telling you, like, my gag reflex was starting to, like, I'm, I'm doing this kind of, like, I, I can't, I had to leave. I'm like, this is terrible. So I don't know what it is. It might have just been that their exhibit needed cleaned, but those are some stinky birds. I'm just, I'm just saying. All right, what about this one for most likely to be in my nightmares? Um, this is a tough, this is a toss-up too. All right, we got, all right, we got some snake people like no and spiders. How many of you like really like both? Like this is like my worst nightmare ever is uh, I'm like, I, I walk through the insect house and I'm like, like this is like this place is my nightmare. Like I, and then like going in the reptile house, I'm like this place, I don't, I don't know. These, they're both my nightmare. This is why I can't do fear factor, by the way. I could do all the physical challenges. I would, I would embrace that. You start throwing like me in a bin full of snakes or spiders, like um, that's it. That's how I'm going out. Like I, I, from a heart attack or something, I don't know. But um, all right, we'll leave you with a, a little different site here. But what about this one, least likely to cuddle with, all right? So which one of those would you be least likely to cuddle with? Um, I know it's a toss-up, right? Because this category should be most likely to rip your face off. That, that's what this could be called. Um, and they both look like so, like, you know, like I would love to just, just pet that, that little mane right there, but that would be the last thing that arm did, right? Like that's, that's it. So I don't, I don't know what your vote is, but I would not recommend cuddling with either. There's a little kid like in the tiger, exi- or the, by, by the lion, he was like sitting there with his face right up on the, but the, the, the lion was sleeping. I was like, like if I was a lion, I would, this would be a perfect opportunity just to scare the pants off that kid, you know? I know, I've got problems, pray for me. I, I so when we think about all these superlatives, I'll tell you right now that, and maybe you're in this group, out of all the exhibits that I saw, I still think the people were the most interesting. Like, you, any people watchers out there, like, you go, you're like, just observing people is an interesting thing. And I'm like, you know what, and I say this positively, it could also potentially be a negative thing, but I, I just enjoy, like, just watching people interact with their families and just watch the whole, whole deal. But pe- people are interesting, you know, and they're, I'm talking about, you know, you talk about a beautiful, odd, and fascinating breed. I mean, this is, this is humanity, right? And if I were to give a category, actually, if I would borrow uh, really a superlative from the scripture for you and me and really humanity, I would say this superlative would be most precious in his sight. Most precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children. You've heard the hymn, all the little children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world, even us grown children, right? Uh, Jesus loves us. And so of all the created world, humanity ranks as the highest in its intrinsic and eternal value. It is only humankind that God created in his own image. Of all that God made and declared good, he looked upon creation following humankind and he declared it very good. Now, by the way, this is not to diminish the value of the animal world, rather elevate the value of humankind. Jesus' own words in Matthew, 9, or Matthew 10, 29 through 31, he asks the question, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And so there is a unique beauty to an intrinsic eternal value to humankind. 
C.S. Lewis says that there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. So there are, there, when you look at the people around you and when you take in, whether you're people watching or wherever you're at, Every person you look at has eternal worth to them. The second thing that is true is that there is a relational quality to every human being that you encounter. No other being in the entirety of creation has the capacity and need for love that you and I have. Simply put, we were made for love. We were made out of love and we were made for love, to be loved and to love. While other beings might have social patterns, emotional responses, responses, personality traits to some level, only humankind was designed for, with an innate need for and capacity to truly love. And so I'll agree with the Beatles on this. All we need is love, love. Love is all we need. But the question we should ask is, what are we talking about when we're talking about that word love? The Wall Street Journal did a study recently, and um, it's based on some age-old data that has been kind of collected over time. But it turns out that Americans aren't a particularly happy bunch. In fact, there was only 12% when asked the smallest share of the survey that answered that they were very happy people. So of all the categories, there's only 12% that said they were very happy people. And by the way, when they called and asked these folks, like, okay, what is it that makes them happy? Because, like, you think about, okay, what's, I want to be in the 12%, right? Like, what is it? It must be that their circumstances are really good. Like, they, they just have, you know, they've, they've kind of reached the American dream. They've reached the pinnacle. They've, they've amassed the things or done the things or had this level of success. Or that. It, it wasn't those things. In fact, it wasn't a product of circumstances at all. People in this category were facing some immensely difficult things. They were facing... Um, diagnoses, health challenges, financial crisis, you name it, they were facing these things. So it wasn't a product of circumstance. People in this category were facing the same challenges all of us faced. Uh, they were among both political parties. They ranged in their socioeconomic status. They existed among all cultural backgrounds. But when they called to see what stood out among this group, and this is the Wall Street Journal, they reported two things that they found uh, interesting. Number one, the overwhelmingly, the very happy category valued strong relationships. Relationships mattered uh, as a top priority uh, for those in the very happy category. The other is this, that they tended to say belief in God was important. I mean, could it be as simple as what the Bible's been saying all along, that it's really about loving God and loving people, that all we really need is love? However, the source and nature of that love is also important. As believers in Jesus Love, in the biblical sense of the word, is foundational. There's all kinds of definitions out there for what love is today. And so we have to, again, gravitate toward the definition that matters the most to us, which is the biblical definition, and living in that kind of love, leaning into that kind of love. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But John, he recalls, um, and we've been in First John, but just looking back on the, the other document that John is, uh, is said to have written in John 13, the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus prepares himself and his disciples for the cross when he says this, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love 
one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so the distinctive characteristic of the disciples of Jesus, those that follow and, and walk in the way of Jesus, is love. And so this topic really matters. In fact, I believe as followers of Jesus, without love we flounder, and with love we truly flourish. And so the question I want to pose to you today, and by the way, if I unpacked the full section I was given today, it would take a little bit longer than a half hour, but I want to really dive into some of the highlights that come out of 1 John 3, the first section of 1 John 3 here today. But the question I want to really uh, brush up against today is this, how can we fully experience love in the way God intended for us to experience it? And experiencing the flourishing life that comes from those who love and experience a relationship with Jesus. And so we're going to spend some time talking about how love changes everything, starting with us. And there's three things that John points out here that I want to raise to the surface for us in 1 John, starting uh, in verse 1. It says this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is that it did not know him, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. Well, those words that we sung a little bit earlier ago, who you say I am, right? That's the, that's the song that we sung, and that's what should matter the most to us, is, is who does God say that we are? And here John is reinforcing the fact that he calls us children of God. That is how he sees us as his own children. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. You notice the descriptive words here. It demonstrates John trying in the best possible way that he can to communicate and convey the extent of God's love. It's great love, and he's not stingy about it. He lavishes his love upon us. I, uh, I get to meet a lot of cool people um, just hanging out at Kala and kind of working out of there. And uh, one of the guys that I met a while back uh, was, and a lot of pastors kind of frequent our area, which is great, you know. We really prayed that God would just fill our space with his presence, and um, a lot of just people that love Jesus have just shown up, and we've, we've gotten to see that. One of the guys um, that I got to meet with a while back, like I just started to talk to him, and, and he said, my name's Bill, and I'm like, I'm Josh, and I learned that Bill was a pastor here in this area, and he had a, a passion for disciple making, and I was like, so we had kind of, we're like, we should sit down and have coffee together, and so we sat down and we had coffee together, and Bill was like, how about I pray for us? You mind if I pray for us, pray for our ministry? And I'm like, I'm always saying yes to that, and the other thing is, I'm trying to surround myself with people that have been in the ministry longer than me, and this is, this is Pastor Bill, he's been doing it a lot longer than me, and, uh, and his walk with the Lord, um, he, he is definitely a veteran in that category too, and I, I just was like, I'm like, of course you can pray for me, like, let's do this, and so we sat down to pray, and his prayer was so simple yet profound, I've thought a lot about it since, and he just prays this, we're just sitting down to pray, and he goes, Father. It's just so good to be your kid. And that struck me, the simplicity of that prayer and the genuineness of that prayer, because you could tell that as he prayed that, like that he was just so swept up in this reality of just being God's kid's father. It's just so good to be your kids. And as I thought about that, I thought perhaps one of the greatest marks of maturity is how wrapped up we are in that reality. 
Like how content we are to live in this space of just being God's kids when our delight and definition of oneself is completely tied to simply being God's kids. This is really the message from the elder John here as he writes to us, who, by the way, hung his own identity in the fact that he was loved by God. Remember how he referred to himself in the gospel, the one that Jesus loved? Like he was so swept up and wrapped up in this reality that he just can't help but convey that and communicate that to his listeners, to anybody that would listen and say, listen, listen, how great the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Just like Bill, John's saying, this is so good to be God's kids. And we should continue to be swept up in that reality. Karl Barth, who was arguably one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, he wrote this 12-volume church dogmatics, um, which, by the way, had 10,000 pages of systematic theology. Some of you are like, I don't know what dogmatics is, and I don't know what the systematic theology is. Bottom line is he's a really sharp dude. And toward the end of his life, Barth made a tour of the United States where he had the opportunity to speak at several of our nation's top universities. And he would do a question and answer session at the end. And during one of the, after one of his, his, his lectures, a student posed what seemed like an impossible question. He said, Dr. Barth, you've written extensively on every aspect of theology and church history. I'm wondering if you could sum it up in a sentence or two. I mean, imagine this, like the sharpest guy in his field. And you're like, it's like you're telling Einstein, like, hey, Tell me, um, just in a sentence or two, about your stuff. Like, I, you know, can you sum it up? Like, give me the quick version of it, the, you know. And uh, the room fell silent. And uh, Dr. Barch just stood there for a moment, carefully considering how to respond. And some of the professors and students, they were actually kind of feeling awkward about the question because it felt like such a trifling question to be asked of a brilliant scholar. But finally, Carl Barth, he turned toward the student and succinctly replied, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It was the same thing that really found Paul just swept up in this reality too, because he said this, he said, I'm going to pray. If I'm going to pray for something, he says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You stuck on what to pray for? I think that's a good starting point. Like, God, just sweep me up in your love. Help me to understand the depth of your love, the height of your love, the breadth of your love. Friends, the love of God is what marks us as we walk in relationship with Jesus. It marks us. And our love or love and response is what makes us or potentially breaks us. Love is what makes us. Not only do we see that God's love marks us, but when we allow God's love to invade our lives, we see that it shapes us, it reforms us. As we read on in 1 John, it says, But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And so there's this I, kind of this picture of, as we just sung about the homecoming song, right? Like what it's going to be like when we finally see Jesus in all of his glory, and we become as we were really designed to be and meant to be. 
And then he says this, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. So there's a bit of a tension we might feel here. It's like, wait a minute, like, you're saying that, like, I just, I'm never going to sin again if I am in relationship with Jesus? This isn't the point here. If we build on what we're talking about from before, that our identity flows from God's love, and there's nothing we can do to earn God's love, that it's also then what begins to change the trajectory of our life. And so he's not talking about, hey, we're not going to make a mistake here or there, or sin here and there. What he's saying is our life no longer follows that trajectory. We're on a new trajectory because love is shaping us from the inside out. And so the idea here is that the more that we are wrapped up in God's love for us, the more we become consumed with love for him, the more we become consumed with love for him, the more that we become like him, and the more that we love like he loves. And this pattern plays out as we live in relationship with Jesus. I'll say it simply this way, where love leads, your life follows. Paul writes this to Timothy when he says, I was flooded with such incredible grace like a river, overflowing its banks until I was full of faith and love for Jesus the anointed one, where love leads, your life follows. And unfortunately, this isn't just true of love for God. That's why in 1 John 2, John cautions by saying, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. And so these two things don't coexist well. One's going to push out the other. The other's going to push the other out. And so is it love for the Father that consumes us, or is it love for the things of the world? James Smith writes this, he says, to be human is to be a lover and to love something as ultimate. You can't not love. So the question isn't whether you, whether you will love something as ultimate. The question is, what will you love as ultimate? And he goes on to say, you are what you love. You will become what you love. Augustine said it this way, my love is my weight, sorry, my weight is my love. Wherever I am carried, my love is carrying me. The great reformer Martin Luther once said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. John Calvin referred to the heart as an idol factory. Why do I give you all of these quotes? All of this to say is it's important to take an inventory of what dominates our heart, like honestly. Or we're not trying to lie to ourselves about it. Like, no, 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 I love God the most in my life. Like, he's, he's front and center. He's the, but really to take an inventory of our heart and be like, man, what is it that consumes my thoughts, my thinking? What is it that eats up my finances? What is it that takes up my time? And by the way, I have to challenge myself in this way just as much as any of us do. We have to take constant inventory of what dominates our heart because where our heart leads, our life follows what we love ends up determining what our life will look like. So when John says that those who live in God do not continue to sin, sin, he means there's a different trajectory to that life that is continuing to be swept up in love. A heart bent on God is drawn away from sin and into light. It is drawn out of darkness into light. It is drawn away from the things of the world and toward the things that come from above. Where love leads, your life follows. And so ask yourself the question, what or who? dominates your heart what do you love because love is what marks us love is what makes us or potentially breaks us 
And lastly, love is what moves us. John says this in verse 10, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. For this is the message you heard from the beginning, we should love one another. And here he's referring back to what Jesus originally said, that this is what Jesus said, this is what you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And so John gives a litmus test here to test to see if God's love has been activated in us. Because, by the way, God's love does not live undetectable. There are two ways in which it surfaces, and this is how we know who the children of God are. It says, number one, anyone who does what is right. In other words, makes a habit of choosing what is right that is in pursuit of the things of God. Number two, anyone who loves their brother and sister. And by the way, love is more than some cozy feeling. Somebody grabbed me afterwards, they're like, uh, last hour, they're like, you know, I've always thought about it as like, you know, love is not just a noun, but it's a verb. I'm like, that's exactly right, and that's what makes it not so cozy sometimes. Because love draws us out of ourselves. In fact, it sometimes becomes a very painful thing. It becomes a very difficult thing because it demands us to sacrifice of ourself. We can't be a lover of ourselves and a lover of others at the same time. And I don't mean that we can't have self-worth or anything like that. I just mean that our, our, our priority becomes loving God and loving others, even above ourselves. So it's not just some cozy feeling. It's this action word. One theologian said that love does not permit the lover to rest in himself. It draws him out of himself so that he may be entirely in the beloved. And I would argue that love has not matured until it has moved us outside of ourselves. But let me offer a warning. The more that you let love in, the more it's going to crowd hate out. The more that you let love in, the more it crowds indifference out. The more that you let love in, the more it crowds apathy out. So let love in, but be warned, it will mark you, it will make you, and it will inevitably move you outside of yourself. When somebody, um, you or somebody else, prays that God would move, one of the things I've seen, and by the way, I was just sitting back here before um, service the first hour, and I saw where somebody had written on our prayer board, move, you know, just for, just God move with, you know, big words, exclamation, underline. I'm like, man, that is just such a good prayer. God, we want you to move out ahead of us. We want you to move. We want you to do your thing. But one of the things that I found is often when I make that request of God, he makes that same request of me in response. And so maybe as we pray for God to move, the way that he's going to move is through you and me. As he lays that burden on your heart, as you pray for that thing, whatever that is, one of the things I've seen over and over again as somebody has been get, got to this place of holy discontentment is it's often that God's tapping them on the shoulder being like, all right, you're saying move now. I have moved. Now it's your turn. So let's move. Because God begins to tap everyday folks like you and me on the shoulder and saying, I want to move, but I want to move through you. So he taps us on the shoulder or perhaps more like tugs us on the heart and says, I got something for you. And so this is really the beginning. This is what we begin to ask of God. Is God, show me that thing. I want to move. And so let me ask you a few questions. 
What moves a man who's been beat down by cancer for months to thank God for the blessing and lessons of it and make his primary prayer that he could impact others through his experience? What compels an elementary kid to work over the weekend on a sermon about prayer when all his friends are out enjoying the nice weather? What moves a young girl who just graduated from college to spend a year in the Czech Republic doing mission work and sharing the gospel when most her age are out, I don't know, partying, starting careers, focusing on what's next for their life? What moves a person to give up their own car for somebody in the church in need? What moves a person who has, been, has seen the damage of betrayal to respond with forgiveness? What moves a young mom who already has her hands full with her own kids to begin a journey helping unwed mothers by supporting them and discipling them? What moves a gifted artist who could undoubtedly use his gifting for personal gain to use it instead to leverage it that people might experience the God of goodness and mercy? What compels somebody to thank God for being downsized and elect not to chase another big paycheck but instead pursue the path of greatest impact? I believe the answer to all of those questions is the same, and that answer is love. And by the way, all of those people either sit or have sat in the seats that you're sitting in right now. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15 says, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And so church, I have a prayer for you to pray. It's a dangerous prayer, I'll warn you of that, but it's a prayer that God delights in answering. And so I I really want you to consider this, and if you mean it, I, I dare you to pray it. God, move me for what moves you. God, move me for what moves you, because I believe that God is already on the move but I believe that he wants to move through you, that he wants to compel us by love to continue to move out and make an impact in the lives around us, and that's what love does. And so will you pray that dangerous prayer? Because I believe that God will open doors, and the first door that he's going to open will be the door to your heart. And maybe some of you are like, I'm not even there yet. You know, I just need to, I just need to let God move in first and if that's you today I would love to have a conversation with you about what that looks like as well to invite God to move into your life and so would you would you pray as God puts those things on your heart today would you pray those things I dare you to pray that simple prayer the God of love is already on the move he wants to move for you God thank you for today thank you for just an opportunity to gather together God and as we just come before you here one more time to sing out, God, I pray that we would be truly considering, God, the depth of your love. The love that moved you to give up the throne of heaven. To walk down here on earth with us and give up your own life. Pouring out your blood on our behalf. That we might have a relationship with you, the relationship that we were made for, God. And so, We just come before you humbly. We come before you with thanksgiving. God, and I pray as we sing this next song that we could express our thanksgiving to you, God, whether it, however that looks, God. Even if it physically moves us in this room a little bit today, God, I just pray, God, that your spirit would continue to come upon us and continue to lead us near to you.
and more deeply into your relationship with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said.